So can we all stand up? Or as we're able, come forward. Yeah, cool. Great. So um, uh, I understand that in tech companies, they have meetings, and they're called stand-up meetings, so they don't go on too long. Just take care of business. We need to move on. So I thought we'd have a stand-up meeting about the logistics of the course. I don't want to go on at length for the third month in a row about how does this course work. However, we do want to check in and see, is it working? Are there any burning things that are unresolved or ideas that people have about the functioning of the course? Thank you. Is everybody getting emails once in a while from? Okay, because there've been just a handful. But if you've gotten a handful, then you're you're getting the emails. Okay. Shall you raise your hand if you're going to San Quentin? Look around. Say, Quentin, put your hand on your hip. Thank you. Okay, Move, I just want to come keep us moving. What else? It's all working. It works if you work it. Great. And it won't if you don't. <laughs> Question, comment? No, no, okay, no, great. Super. It's taken a while to kind of navigate through the 
Great, super. <coughs> okay, so um, next task. Um, I don't know if I've said this or not, but um, I like to think of this class as an enactment of spiritual care while we're together. Have I talked about this yet? Yeah, so it's a good time. So I invite you to consider that while you're here, you're being a spiritual care provider or a chaplain to the other people here and to the group as a whole. Why wouldn't we practice this while we're together, right? It's not just about when we leave the room. Great. And so um, I have noticed as being a person in the room thinking about the whole, I've noticed it's really challenging for us to be in a really big circle. Because I've noticed that when you're over here, those guys are really far away. And you can hardly see them. They're like backlit. (laughs) Then I've noticed like, over here, some people don't hear as well because they're over here. And then I've also thought, you know, at this juncture, we're becoming an us. This is our room and our course, okay? So I'd like to take the next 10 minutes to do an exercise to address what I think is a little bit of a challenge and also to help make this our own room. And here's what I'm going to propose. And Gil Paul, because <laughs> you have no idea what I'm going to say because I haven't done this before, but I... I did it recently, it was really great. I would like us to rearrange the room in a way that suits us from here going forward, which means we'll have to discuss together and come up with ideas and do some moving around. Like, what do you think would really work? Is this great? Can we adapt it? Uh, What do you think? And so I thought you could start with going to your small groups, whoever's in your small group, and talking with them and then interacting with other groups. And we'll take 10 minutes. And it's your room. It's our room. So how would you like the room to be? Your geographical group. Good question. It's great. Your geographical group, what we call the small group. If you don't have a small group, join one. If you don't like your small group, abdicate and go to another one. I'm just trying to create small groups for this exercise to work with the room and be in our bodies for 10 minutes. Okay? Ready, set, go. How about now? Oh, hello. Yeah, so maybe we can quiet that a bit since we're a little closer. Or it's really loud for some reason to my ear. Great. How's that? Good? Yeah, that's a little better. Great. Okay. All right. A few deep breaths.
The scent of the bell uh, says a little bit about what I think about the ethics of being a chaplain. Um, and I'm going to approach this. Actually, circles and concentric circles are good because this will have a quality to it in the way I want to talk about the realms of ethics that a chaplain enters into as concentric circles. So there's kind of a convergence of a concept going on. You've heard a lot already today, um, and I do want to lay a little groundwork before we move into some case study small group work. Paul talked this morning about working from the inside out with a sense of wholesome being as the primary bell of what's right to do, uh, what's ethical, what's appropriate, what grows more and more mature in us as we operate in our lives. Um, And that's true for chaplains, although there are some very specific things that are specific to the role in working in institutions that Jaku pointed to. Um, I think I must be bumping something, huh? Okay. better. I'll try not to. Well, I do gesture, so. I'm not surprised that the classes in ethics have been more popular in the last couple of years, because I think there really is a a kind of a crisis of ethical um, action going on in our world, um, much less our nation. So while I don't want to belabor the point. I really do think it's important to start this conversation with a wholehearted embrace of the precepts. Um, we really do have to be about not not killing, not harming, um, not lying, you know, not stealing, uh, not acting out inappropriately with our sexuality, and not uh, operating in the world in an intoxicated way. Uh, with those addictions active in our work. Um, So fundamental, but not um, always celebrated, I would say, in the public space today. So that's that's kind of the ground where we start. And then as, as Joku talked about, there are levels of development in our ethical approach. We move away from the knots, usually the right and wrong, you know, somewhere between three and seven, ages three and seven, and become much more open to, uh, it's much more than not killing, it's about not harming. And harming isn't only physical, it's in your words, it's in your approach and all of that. So it becomes more and more refined, and then hopefully that's just the fundament of of our virtue, which we are sila, that we perfect over our lives. And then there are five realms of ethics. So we'll fast forward to adulthood. This is the fundament of how our morality is laid down within us. Um, And while we'll probably operate at a fairly even and fairly high level as functioning adults, um, out of that, there'll always be gaps. We'll always 
regress at times in our lives to what is right, what is wrong. When we're angry in a public place, we may be much more verbal than we would be uh, with that anger if we're not in a reactive place. But having said that, well, basically for the most part, we've got kind of an adult understanding of our morality, and it's consistent with the precepts if we're moving into chaplaincy. And if you have any real doubt about that in yourself, that would be a good conversation to have with a trusted other, with a teacher, with a supervisor, because that's an issue. So we arrive. What are the realms of ethics that we'll be working with at the hospital, at the prison? We walk in with our own well-formed conscience on a really good day when we're really rested and well cared for and, and coming out of retreat perhaps. We're, we're, we're coming in there with that really strong sensation of our wholesome being and we're, we're acting out of the good. And that's where we start. Um, and that, that conscience is the place that we start and end. And it is a whole body conscience, as you've heard a couple times today already. It's not just what you think. It's also how you feel. And it's how um, you respond to the other with action. So that conscience, um, it's embodied. And we all have our primary go-to when we first are presented with um, a dilemma. And I'd like to make a distinction between a moral dilemma and an ethical dilemma. In Western thinking, and the institutions will be operating and are structured around Western thinking, there is a sense that there's right and wrong, and that's morality. So a moral dilemma is about what's right and what's wrong. It's usually pretty simple. Uh, You don't, uh, in the hospital, um, decide that it's your turn to relieve someone of their suffering by injecting them with uh, some kind of a drug so that they die. At least they're relieved from their suffering. We know that's wrong. That's a moral dilemma. It's not usually hard to figure out what the answer to it is. But ethical dilemmas are what's good and what's better. And it takes into account everything in a situation. So when someone talks about an ethical dilemma, it's about a conflict in values and trying to figure out, given that conflict, what's what's good and and fine and what would be better. It's not usually about what's right and what's wrong. So as the role of the chaplain comes in, we do have some very specific um, proscriptions around our work and around our role. And I'll go through those in a little bit of um, detail when we finish these realms. So you have your conscience your sense of what's right and wrong, your moral foundation, and then alert to ethical dilemmas. As the chaplain, you'll be expected to participate in those dilemmas in a certain way. Detail coming. The next level is an actual situation before you, a case. And in that case, you won't resolve it as the chaplain. It'll be resolved by a group of caregivers, the nurse, the doctor, perhaps someone from the community. The chaplain will have a say. A social worker might be involved. Uh, Some guardian from the county could be there. Family will be there. And in that case before you, that is where ethics becomes more complex because each of those people brings their own conscience, their own history about how that was formed, their own sense of right and wrong, their own sense of good and better, 
and um, the circum- facts about the circumstances that the others may not be aware of. So that's why when an ethics consult takes place and people all gather to meet and resolve something, uh, it can be a lengthy process and it can be a messy process. Um, and yet, at the end of the day, I will say that those have been some of the most satisfying experiences I ever had as a chaplain and as a caregiver and as a healer because there is time and space for all voices to be heard. And in the interdependence and interconnectedness that are part of who we are and that we so honor in um, our Buddhist lineage, there is a real sense of satisfaction with that. So even though it's more complex, there is a sense we can solve those situations. Sometimes a dilemma cannot be solved at the case level. You have somebody, for example, who um, doesn't have someone to speak for them. And the rules that we have about how we decide to make medical decisions is that a patient speaks for themselves. If they have absolutely no one who speaks for them, someone in their family, whatever, if they have no family, um, they have no one. This happens more and more. And so what does the institution do? Because the doctor can't make a decision. You can gather everyone else who's interested about the patient, but they're unconscious, say. We cannot make a decision to end their care. That's against the law. It's against our societal norm of saying the person speaks for themselves and so forth. So it's just an example of how some ethical dilemmas can only be solved at the institutional level, and the institution at that point needs to either change their system uh, or, or go out to a societal expert like a judge in order to decide what to do and move forward. So you have your institutional level, and maybe your administrator gets involved in that sort of thing, or you have policies that tell you what to do. Um, and many hospitals now have committees that have gotten sanctioned in order to make those kinds of decisions, but they're the exception. So you go out to the society. A good example of an ethical dilemma that can only be decided at the societal level is um, with organ transplant. Say someone needs a liver and someone else needs a liver and someone else needs a liver, how do you decide who gets that liver? Well, as a society, we've decided to organize the whole country into districts of organ procurement agencies, and there are a series of guidelines and rules about how that will work out and who will get the liver and all of that. But that can't be decided by the doctor. It can't even be decided by the institution. It's decided by this larger body that the society has sanctioned. So those are our levels. Those are our rings or our realms of ethics, you know, the individual conscience, the, the individual caregiver, and in this case, the chaplain, uh, the institution, the case itself, where everyone is working on a particular set of circumstances, the institution, and the society. And if you want to read a little more about this, there's a, a book called The Three Realms of Ethics by Jack Glazier, and um, it's very instructive about the interplay of these different realms. G-L-A-Z-E-R. Does anybody have any questions about that? Because that's like Ethics 101 in 10 minutes. And it it, kind of gives you the landscape of how people think about ethics with respect to uh, chaplaincy in healthcare and in other institutions. I lost track of the one, two, five. So the one is the individual conscience. The second is the the the, chap, the, the ethical guidelines that um, 
you will embrace as a chaplain, and we'll go into that in more detail next. The third is in the instance of a particular case where an ethical dilemma is raised. Uh, Someone who is in the ICU, they've been in there for 10 days, they're unconscious, we're not clear whether or not they will come out of it. The caregiving team, the doctor and nurse think, no, they're not going to get better. The family thinks, no, they are going to get better. How do you resolve that dilemma? Both want what's good for the patient, but what they think will happen is different. So that, in that case, you gather a group to make a decision, but that's the ethical dilemma at the third level. The fourth is an institutional where something can only be solved at the institutional level. Maybe you need a new policy to take care of a situation, or, or there's a, a structure that, can't, um, that, the, that the hospital hasn't thought of yet. For example, and that was the um, one we mentioned where someone has no one to speak for themselves. So what do you do with that? And then the institution has to decide we're going to go to court, but that can't be decided by the caregivers at the bedside. And then the last realm is... Um, society itself, and really big issues like rationing care and rationing organs. That's intended, that tends to happen at the societal level. We've seen a big shift on that, for example. Another example of that last realm is with physician-assisted suicide, where uh, it was against the law, so it couldn't be resolved at any of those other levels. Now that it is not against the law in some places, society has spoken, and institutions then can choose whether to opt in or out and so forth. Ethics is very social. It's very social. It's where that interconnectivity hits the road. And yet, people have different moral instincts, or different ethical instincts, I would say, and will approach it different ways, and they can be talking at each other constantly without hearing because they're using different frames of reference. Some of us are very rule-oriented, and we'll say, well, this is the rule. There's only one way to apply this rule. And someone else will say, well, I think that that rule leads to this consequence. And because these consequences happen, I, that I, I can't follow that that way. I think we should get to it another way. In any event, um, because it is so social, it's kind of ripe for conflict when you're talking about, especially about the good and the better. And that's also why it's important, um, not for us as chaplains necessarily, unless you love ethics like I do, to be able to say this is solved at the case level, this is solved at the institutional level, this is solved at the societal level, or you know, I, in my own heart, know how I'm going to approach the situation, and it's within the scope of my work. Um, everyone will approach that a little bit differently. But knowing the landscape can help, and it can help us, as we heard this morning, you know, kind of let go of our of, of, of our own agenda and really be there to serve the other person. So what is the Code of Ethics for Chaplains? That's what I'd like to spend the next, how much time do we have? Maybe the next 20 minutes on before we break up to do some experiments and casework, which is fun. The Association of Professional Chaplains has put together a Code of Ethics um, that's pretty straightforward. It's not long. It's three or four pages, and Jennifer will post it after this class, so you'll be able to. And, in fact, I would strongly encourage you to read it uh, through. Um, 
You might even, at the end of reading it through, write yourself a paragraph, what you think of it, what made sense, what you didn't like, you know, what hit some buttons for you, and what, what you really uh, can easily see why it's so valuable. But just at least do that process. Please read through it. It's really important if you choose or plan to go forward in uh, any kind of formal chaplaincy work. Um, it will be posted as soon as the, uh, after the class. The title is Association of Professional Chaplains Code of Ethics. And it's short, four pages, and there are basically five principles that I'd like to kind of review with you here. And unfortunately, they don't exactly correspond with the precepts, so we can't make like a nice chart where they kind of exactly match. But you will see how they kind of flow in and out of each other, kind of like the fins on um, a fish. So to set it up, there are some general principles and values that are embedded in this. And um, living in the Bay Area, I think these principles and values are probably uh, welcome, and uh, we open our hearts to them. There are places where people wouldn't agree with these principles and values, so it's important for you to know they're in there. The individual person possesses dignity and worth. There are some who would say dignity and worth is earned. It isn't inherent, and not everybody is equal. Some people are better than others. We see a lot of that right now, actually. But this says each individual person possesses inherent dignity and worth. The spiritual dimension of a person is an essential part of healing and wholeness and meaning in life. Not everybody believes there's a spiritual dimension to people. But we as chaplains ascribe to a code of ethics that says, yes, there is a spiritual dimension, and we're here to serve that spiritual dimension. And we think it's in everyone, not just in people who have a religious practice. Inclusivity and diversity are foundational values in in pastoral care services and formal professional chaplaincy. So this would be, again, everyone has equal value. And people's specificity is very important to um, how we approach them in a way that respects their dignity and worth. And then finally, and this is somewhat controversial, this comes, well, you don't need to know where it comes from, but public advocacy related to spiritual values, okay, that's good, and social justice concerns is promoted on behalf of persons in need. Now, not all religious uh, people, not all spiritual people, believe that social justice concerns are, are, are something that chaplains should be aware of. But there is a prophetic side or speaking up for those who can't speak for themselves that is embedded in the professional understanding of chaplaincy in our country at this particular moment in time. So those are the background values. Okay, that kind of make sense as we kind of go through then the five areas that are important for you to actually know. The first one, members shall treat all persons with dignity and respect. Pretty basic. I think we see that here. I've seen that from everyone here. Probably not a controversial statement. But on a good day, it's not too hard to do. But there'll be situations that you'll run into where it won't be easy to maintain a demeanor of dignity and respect for the other. I had one in my first year of chaplaincy uh, training where I went in, I was a um, commissioned member at that point, I was a a Roman Catholic laywoman, commissioned member of my parish to take communion to the sick in the hospital. 
And I took communion into the room of a, of a woman patient who was uh, not in my parish, but in a neighboring parish, which is completely appropriate in the Catholic tradition. And she um, basically said to me, oh, no, honey, I only take communion from the hands of a priest. And said it in such a condescending way and such a dismissive way. And there was kind of an angry undertone to her voice. And I, you know, I'm young. I've got, you know, I know right and wrong. I know all that good stuff. But I will say the karmic history of my having been put down as a woman in so many ways, so many times, conjured a reaction for me. (laughs) And I had to bite my tongue. You know, I had to... I was really angry, and I was really hurt, and I, and I was insecure already, so of course that's what the, kind of the stew that re- led to that reaction. You know, but I was able to say to her, all right, I'll make sure that the priest comes by. I don't think I did it with very much grace, but I think I did respect her dignity, and I respected her, and at least was civil. <laughs> and sometimes that's the best we can do. Now, obviously, that was a really impactful event for me, and I, I took that and processed that with my group and processed that with my supervisor, and it's important to do that because there will be those situations where people are just in your face and they know it somehow it goes right to that thing in you that makes it very hard to respect their dignity. Um, we could probably think, each of us, of lots of situations like that for ourselves, um, and they, they do come up. But we promise... You know, as part of our code of ethics, as part of working out of our our best selves to um, respect people with their dignity no matter what. There are very specific other elements of that in this section, and um, you need to read it. Uh, Another important part of that, and it's kind of interesting to me, they put it here rather than in the professional section that we'll get to, but... As part of treating people with dignity and respect, it does make sense philosophically. This is where the integrity of the pastoral relationship is important and where we refrain from emotional, financial, sexual, or any other form of exploitation. Pretty obvious, but very important that it's stated very clearly, um, not only as a legal requirement, because there are laws that govern this as well, but as an ethical promise. So the dignity and respect of persons, that's one. The second is the privacy of all persons. And this may sound easier than it is because you will learn and hear and see things that are so juicy and interesting that it's difficult not to um, cross some lines when it comes to it. What do I mean? Okay, so Beyonce's in your hospital. Wouldn't you love to go to that section and see if you can get a glimpse of her, see if you can get a glimpse of, of him, and see if you can look at her record? You can't do any of that. I mean, that's, that's a silly example, but it's, but it's kind of honest. There will be people where you want to, you're going to want to know. But if you are not working with that patient, they've not been assigned to you or whatever, that's inappropriate. That is part of their privacy. And in respecting their privacy, respect the boundaries around very vulnerable people at a very vulnerable time. So confidentiality, um, any other kind of a vulnerability for, for patients or the families that they serve, and for your colleagues as well, very important. Uh, something that's a little bit less obvious in this uh, promise to respect the privacy of all persons is the um, disclosures that some of your colleagues make to you. 
whether about patients or about themselves, are also included in this. So when someone confides in you or you have a sense that that's kind of sensitive information, just like we have in our working rules together as a group that we won't share anything that we don't have permission to share, um, it's the same here. You've heard of HIPAA? This is partly where HIPAA is embedded as well. Oh, okay. It's the law which uh, has a very complicated set of guidelines for how we protect patients' uh, private information in the hospital. And uh, it, a lot of it's pretty intuitive, but some of it isn't. Um, you can't take pictures on your cell phone of people. Uh, even if you like the patient and they like you, you're not supposed to take pictures of them in the hospital, and there'll be various reinforcers for that. I don't remember exactly what the initials re- uh, stand for. Do you, Jennifer? It's something like health information, portability, protection, yeah. Anyway, the main thing is when computers and data became so easy to get and so easy to transfer. But also clergy could walk into a hospital and say, I'd like to visit your Presbyterian patients today. Yes, and they still can if somebody hasn't opted out. If somebody has, when they signed in, they said, I'm Presbyterian, and they didn't say, they didn't want that to be preserved as private, they still can walk in and do that. Yeah. Now, the hospital itself could have a policy that says, Anyone who comes in as a clergy to talk to any patient has to check in with spiritual care department first. But, yeah, unless you opt out, you can't be visited by members of the clergy of your denomination. Okay, so privacy. It's pretty intuitive, pretty straightforward. Um, Not a problem for most of us. Number three. Members will conduct themselves with integrity in all their professional relationships, including those whom they serve, their colleagues, and the association. I'm not sure why APC, which is like in Michigan, you would have any relationship with, but there must have been some situation where this was important. Anyway, integrity-based, and, and there is one, one element that makes perfect sense. Integrity means you're honest. It means you're honest in representing your qualifications and affiliations. So, obviously, you can't say you're affiliated with APC if you're not. That's probably what it means by the association being a, um, a protected member here. You have to be really accurate in anything that you put in a patient record or in anything you represent to a member of an institution, whether it's hospital, prison, whatever. Um, that's pretty straightforward and to be responding with honesty and timeliness, you know, about your work. It's basically about not lying and about being honest. There also is an element in here which says if you are unethical or if you observe a colleague who is a spiritual caregiver being unethical, that the association needs immediate notice of any complaint of unethical conduct made against them. So that's a paragraph. It's longer. It would be good to read it. Um, and it means if anybody makes a complaint against you in an ethical way and you are a member of this professional organization, you would have to report it. That's down the line. But, okay, so what do we have? Dignity and respect. Privacy. Integrity. Integrity. Only two more. Mm -hmm. The next one's a big one. Um, Expectations of competency. 
And then it goes into what that means a little bit. And then there is a much longer document than this one that APC puts out about standards for competency. And that's really a good one to read if you haven't read it. Um, and I, I would say, Jennifer, that that would be a good one to post along with this because it talks about the competencies that are expected of a healthcare chaplain anyway. Um, really, it's an institutional chaplain. It's any chaplain. Um, and you, we're kind of running through those in the background. It's kind of like the background operating system of this program. So you can kind of get a, a taste of all of that throughout this year. But it's, it's kind of good to read it. If I'm expected to be competent and I'm promising to be competent, it, I would kind of like to know what the standards are, wouldn't you? So I think it's good to post them. But basically, um, it basically says, you know, I will be competent I'll, in, these, in my theology, spirituality, pastoral skills, and other areas which enhance my professional proficiency, and I'll keep that up throughout my career as a professional chaplain. And then the most important part of this competency part, I think, has to do with knowing when you're at the limit of the scope of your role. So we heard this morning about how important it is to know when it's time to make a referral and also when this isn't the patient or client or person for you to be helping because your issue around something is too big, um, it's not a good day for you, you may have some other relationship with somebody affiliated with this person, but it's time for you to step away, to step away whenever you get that sense. And usually that sense comes in the gut, the body, before it comes to the head. Listen to that. Not every patient or client is one that every chaplain can deal with every day. Uh, I remember it um, in my uh, early years of training, one of my supervisors said, and, I, and at the time I was kind of like just shocked, even this whole category of people you wouldn't care for. She said, my, my father was an alcoholic. I just, I don't, I don't provide care to alcoholics. I can't do it. I can't do it well. They deserve better. I can't do it. Um, and she was one of the best chaplains I knew. <coughs> and, you know, if I were in the hospital, I'd want her to come and, and attend to me. So she was very clear about that boundary that she had and about that, that, that gap in her capacity to be there for the other. And we need to know those places for ourselves. So we add to respect and, pri respect and dignity, privacy, integrity, competency. The last one, professional behavior. Now, this is interesting. Um, chaplaincy has only been a profession since the 19... In, in the United States since the 1940s. And really worldwide, it kind of moved out from then. So it's a pretty young profession and as an institutional element in, in this country. And I think this is the weakest section of this code of ethics. And it doesn't really say much of anything to me. So I'm going to say what I think professional <laughs> behavior means with respect to a chaplain. I think everybody here probably has already had a profession of some kind, and you know what your role is in that profession. So when you said earlier, I don't really know what the role is, you're not alone. I think even the association that certifies chaplains is still trying to figure out what the chaplain is. Are they the person who accompanies? Are they the person who provides um, Rites and rituals at really key and traumatic and moments of transition and or joyful moments in the hospital are the, what place do they play in healing? Is it how do you distinguish spiritual healing from emotional healing and psychological healing? 
where's the overlap with social workers? There's a lot of questions that people have about what that means. And it's why it's so important for you to get your image and to have your sense of what your mission is as a chaplain. I loved hearing that from this morning from, from Jaku. She's really clear about who she is, where she stands in, her, um, in the Dharma for herself, what she brings to that, and how she encourages others to grow into that for themselves. And at some point, you'll need to articulate that for yourselves. You know, what's your image, um, the one walking with someone? My image for many years was being like a water bearer, and she talked about water. You know, we bring water, and we bring the vessel for a patient to pour in their own water, um, to take into account that there is a dimension to healing that isn't addressed specifically and directly in any other branch of medicine or social science. Um, and, you know, what are you, one's own particular gifts and skills and um, attention? Do we, what do we bring? You know, and then what's universal? So what's universal to the chaplain role is pretty small. It's connecting in trust, it's listening, it's reflecting back, it's walking with, and it's acknowledging together with another that spiritual dimension of life. Beyond that, it depends where you are, what you're doing, and how you're doing it. So in any event, to the extent that we have a consensus about what the professional chaplain is, we are expected to... Uh, work to the best interests of those we serve within that role. So that's kind of an overview of the Code of Ethics. Does anybody have any questions about that? Beth? Mandated reporting is required by law, and and the law takes care of it. This doesn't address it except for... um, Acknowledging that with it, as we respect the privacy and confidentiality of the communications we receive, that there are laws that could trump that. So chaplains are mandated. They are. Yeah. And that can be tricky if you represent a denomination where the confessional seal is very strong, um, which I do. But fortunately, I never had that situation <laughs> where I would have had to make a choice. Um, and, you know, that's where we come back to, you know, the wholesome being and the conscience and all of that and what we really do. Um, do you disclose with patients that you're a mandated reporter? Do you think Very rarely am I with a patient who is in my denomination. So... Um, I will say, however, whenever I have a sense that someone is in the, on, the, on, the, on the verge of making a confession, um, I will say to them, would you like me to find someone? Um, and it, it can be very awkward because confessions are so personal. And there's a lot that goes into this calculus for me. If someone's dying, I'm not going to be quite the same as if someone's obviously going to get well. Or if I have a sense of, oh, something's coming that I'm going to have to report, then I'll be really clear. Um, and I did have a few situations like that where actually what came wasn't something I ended up having to report. But I would say, um, I work for the institution. I'm not actually uh, employed by the church. And so what you tell me, I may need to share with 
the, the organization. Uh, so yeah, there are rules in, around that, that that can be that can interfere sometimes with the um, encounter itself. But that we need to have that boundary to protect ourselves for the long haul. Yeah. Um, I wanted to offer that we think it would be helpful to have as many of us working at the hospital, also the framework that they give us in medical school and some of the medical providers, the way that the coffee Yes. It's um, very interesting to hear the differences. Um, so just as a medical student um, in San Francisco. Is this something that is interesting to people and potentially helpful? I just wanted to offer, um, we're taught four domains for any ethical dilemma. Um, the first being non-maleficence, so do no harm. But the second being beneficence, or benevolence, <laughs> sure. but to try to actively do, do good. Um, and then the third is autonomy, and the fourth is justice, so thinking about the societal level. Um, but I imagine that if you are interacting with medical providers, they may be... Uh, wrestling between those four things. That's sort of the framework that we're taught. I just wanted to offer that to the group. Thank you very much. Absolutely true. And it's not the same everywhere in the world. Autonomy is not the same in Europe. It's not the same in Canada. In fact, I think the United States and Australia may be the only places where we canonize autonomy of the patient. Canonize it. Make it the highest value. Yeah, personal choice. I think your four domain foundation is a perfect example of where sort of autonomy and justice often. Very good point. Uh, you mentioned the, the word resolution a few times, but it seems like as Buddhist chaplains, like especially like in the context of an uh, organ donation, doesn't non-resolution play a big part? I'm not sure what you mean. Somebody didn't get the organ. Uh-huh. Nothing's resolved for them. And, and for, okay, for me, not to get too theoretical, but like in my own personal practice, it seems like sometimes just to recognize, you know, things aren't right. Oh, yeah. And, and, and that's okay. And it's like to sit with non-resolution. Oh, my gosh. I'd rather see Huge. the behind me. But I do like sitting on the floor. Mm-hmm. And it's nice that the circle's smaller. <laughs> I'm not getting my way all the way, and that's okay kind of thing. It just seems like that would play a real key part. It's hugely important in surviving in an institution of any kind because things will not go as they will not. That bell of justice inside you is not going to ring every day. Yeah, and we have to find our own peace with that. Um, and I think that's why it's so important to have good relationships with colleagues and with others in the field and others in the institution so that that, you can talk about those kinds of things. One thing that um, I think chaplains are a little different from most other health caregivers except maybe social workers in my experience is we're high processors. We need to talk and feel our way through things and that's slower than looking at an algorithm or um, some kind of a chart that says, okay, we do this and we do that and we do this and we do that. And I, I admire how so often nurses can just run through that, although they, they kind of will get an accumulated sense of things if, it's, if something's really not right in those charts. 
at some point, and they've just had to do the same thing over and over. We talked to a close to burnout ICU nurse who's had to keep alive people where they really should not have been having that level of, of care at, after a certain period of time because of how hard it is on the body and how hard it is on the caregiver. Um, digressing. So nurses also, it's an issue that they don't have a place to process. And I would say for physicians, while it's not in their training so much and it's not in their practice to process how things impact them, um, that has, it takes a toll. And, and those who are on the urge of, edge of burnout or involved in, in practices that evidence that there has been that kind of emotional toll, either with addiction or whatever, um, will, will often respond really well to things, to places where they can process the hard cases like Schwartz rounds or there are other places. But pro- chaplains, it's just the way we're wired. You know, we're drawn to this stuff because we have a sense of what's wholesome and what's not. And you're in a situation in institutions where it's moving fast and it's a culture that's kind of harsh and it's about life and death, but it's also about money and lots of other things, as are prisons. And, yeah, you're going to just be eating this stuff all the time. So how do you metabolize it? How do you not take it in? How do you have good, decent boundaries? It's a, it's a complex process. Yeah. Because you, you can't keep that ethical mirror really clean if this stuff's accumulating and throwing it up against it all the time. It's like bugs, you know, driving down the I-5 on your windshield. Mm-hmm. Um, can you maybe give an example going back to non-resolution um, and like justice if um, maybe someone that you're like working with um, sp- speaks up to you um, about an injustice they feel like they've faced and like what would be an appropriate um, response or thing to say to them if there's nothing you can do about it? It's a very good question, and it's embedded in one of the cases we have. So I'm not going to answer your question right now. I will. um, We can talk about it after we do the cases. How's that? Is that okay? Okay. Okay. It's a lot of head stuff. Um, You may think, well, that's way too much. I didn't take any of it in, whatever. Remember, five precepts, five sections. You're going to get the paper. You'll get to look at it. It's really not too complicated. But what is complicated is when you're in the institutions, in the situations themselves. And let's get some fun. Let's have some fun with that. So I've got three cases. Two are healthcare cases. One is an incarceration case. Um, And I think maybe if we count off by seven... And one group will have four rather than three, but this is a group exercise. So let me say a little bit about what you'll do once we count off, and I pass these out. There'll be uh, an individual in it. There'll be two individuals who will be doing the role play, because this is a role play. And then there'll be someone who's a witness to the role play and a scribe who's just observing what's going on between the two. So one of you will step into the shoes of a sort of uh, either a, patient client or a chaplain so there's a chaplain in every case and there's a patient client in two of the cases and in one of the cases there's a chaplain and an administrator because it's a situation like you're describing so we'll count off I'll hand out the cases and um, we should count off not by seven 
by three, but you're not going to have everybody in. Two two groups will do. Yeah, you'll be doing the same case. Two groups will do. Two, two, and how does it work now? Three, three, and then one will. So there'll be. Two groups will do case one, two groups will do case two, and three groups will do case three. I think Anita left. Oh, okay, so we just have seven. Yeah. So we'll just have, yeah, easy. Each group seven will have three. three. Okay. And then I would spread out because this is, it's, it's a little funky to the first few times you do a role play, and I don't think we've done much with that yet in this group, but it's fun. So how many of you have done improv? Oh, yeah, you're going to be great then. You're going to love this. Yeah. Okay, good. We've got them to kind of seed the collective. Um, and this is, the, like has been said before, this is the place to try it out. This is the place to make mistakes. This is the place to laugh about it because there's no cost here except to one's own self-esteem. Sense of self, self-image. Okay, let's count. One, two, three, four, four, Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask um, the ones and twos to come over here, the threes and fours to go here. I oh, know, is that right? And the five, six, seven to go over there. Yeah, that is right. <laughs> Um, robust engagement with the um, scenarios, which is always yeah fun to see. How did that go for folks? Just generally, what was it? Was it? What did it feel like being in those roles? Which role did you like better? Who liked the chaplain or helper role better? Who likes the scribe? Ah, <laughs> oh, it's a bunch of Buddhists. <laughs> witness, witness, witness. <laughs> Who liked being the patient or the, the a client or the administrator? That's the one I wanted to be. Oh, she's always been a problem. We never believe a thing she says. No, anyway. <laughs> you think we I'm kidding? Say that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're not surprised. That's why we're sending her back to her country. Um, <laughs> Pardon? You brought up so many questions. Yeah. And yeah. woefully inadequate information-wise what to do. And that, doesn't that tell us that, first of all, getting things through the head, through kind of a little you know, paragraph, is so narrow compared to our normal perception through all the sense doors when we take our whole body into an institution, into a situation. Into, we're always going to know more than we even realize we know. And it's going to impact how we do that. So this is always uh, anemic in the sense of there's so much more information to know. But no matter how much you know, you're never going to know everything. So it's often interesting that... Um, when you get into some real situations, you, you often will feel like, I'd really like to know more. Uh, what if we knew this? What about that? And we won't. We won't. That unresolution, you know, it does kind of run through things. Copies of the other two. 
we'll go ahead and post all three. Okay, great, yeah. Um, and the first scenario, so group one, who had case one? Which one was one? They say on them, well, the ones were here, the twos were here, and the threes were there. Okay, case one. Is there anything you want to say, just a few words about what the scenario was and what your particular takeaway was? So the scenario was a good friend um, calls you up and tells you that her husband's got cancer with two months to live, and he wants to go to Ireland. Um, doesn't really say why he wants to go to Ireland. Uh, we took it as that there might be a treatment um, in Ireland that might help him um, in his last two months to live to, so he could live longer. Um, and you experimental treatment. And you are um, invited to lunch to, to have lunch with the husband and to go over that scenario. Okay. What was your takeaway? Um, so we had um, a lot of concern uh, because his wife did not want him to go to Ireland. Um, so um, as a chaplain or a friend asked, you know, what is important in your life? You know, I, I know it's important to live, but what else is important? He's 46 years old, and um, the response came back is, my wife's important. And so then delve deeper is, if your wife is important, then you should have, you know, work through with your wife, you know, what's important to her. Why doesn't she want you to go, you know? What, what is her ex excuse? Is it money? And if so, if it's money, then you have an ethical problem because, you know, if you have to borrow money um, to go over to Ireland and the procedure doesn't work, then she's stuck with this debt. And do you want to, and this person who's very important to you, do you want to leave her with this debt? So, so what you saw in it was all the potential conflicts. And even as a friend, wh who are you friend to? And there's a potential conflict of interest between the two. So helping the person investigate their motives and what really mattered, that that's, sounds like a, a good approach. Great. You had one too, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, we, so we did it twice, and the first time we did it was um, it was made a little bit too easy without the appearance of conflict because uh, we had the patient um, say he wanted to go to Ireland that he saw a treatment that he might investigate and that his wife was fine with that and they were going to go together and if nothing else they'd have a trip to Ireland together and that was kind of it um, and then when we redid it, we had a little more conflict in it and had the patient in much more denial. Um, and there was more questioning about um, the motives behind and to get him to look deeper into his reasons for wanting to go and to, you know, was the idea of not wanting to be exploited and to an experimental treatment that... So, what was, so what was the yeah. Well, um, given the outlines, given the outline that Christina gave us, what's the ethical dilemma? In the first one, uh, being just in the case, 
We struggled with that. We did struggle with trying to find what that was, given that it sounded like everybody was so agreeable about... But if I'm a chaplain <coughs> keeping somebody's secret, I'm watching somebody lie to somebody else. Was there a lie? Was there a lie? There's no, the husband says there's no problems. We're fine. But meanwhile, the wife has said to me, this is a problem. So the chaplain... It's the conflict between the two. distracted by... Their decision. Uh huh. Yeah. So, so, so this is a little temptation. You know? mm-hmm. Ooh, this is really. What would I choose? You know. You know. At, but I have to keep. You know. So one of the other ethical pieces, not just decision making, which is you know, is around. What was it, privacy? Right, privacy, right. and who, who are you actually attending to? And, yeah. and, and well, when we did have that question, too, am I the good friend or am I the chaplain? Am I going to lunch as the good friend? And so we decided I was going to lunch as the good friend. But, I, you know, because I couldn't tell from it, because it did say, it said, well... You're right. That that, that was written that, that was way. The good friend. It was written as the good. So friend. in my so mind, I wasn't sure. What if I was the good friend or the? Chaplain. And that, and that's embedded in it as well. Because in my mind, this is kind of a liminal time for everyone here. So when you know, I remember one of my daughters saying to me when I was kind of coming back at her with something, "Mom, you're not a chaplain here. You're my mom," because sometimes we step into that chaplain role. Mm-hmm in places where there's friendship where it's not appropriate. And yet, those skills can be helpful in friendship. Mm-hmm. So that was actually embedded in that, too. So yeah. it's a little the complex. Wife, the wife calling for help, saying, like, actually, we need to, like, I last week, So I got an email this week from somebody saying, this person we know is in real crisis. Yeah. And she's asked for spiritual counsel from that group over there. So I got copied with the ask to that group. That group, that person said, I'm not available. And I realized, she. so you're the one in crisis, you two are in crisis. You're telling me, they're in crisis, <laughs> yeah. go help them. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and that's I, this where happens comfort- a lot. It does. You know? And I thought to myself, I've learned, you know, until they ask me, you know, actually I reached out to her and said, wow, you know, you're a good friend. You know, to be so concerned about that, you know, because so we have to. It's really who are you caring for? And and yeah, so don't don't skip to the juicy medical stuff without thinking what position am I in? Yeah, that's my point. Great, thank you, everyone. It was kind of a softball. Yeah, it made it maybe too a little too soft. (laughs) A little hard to figure out. (laughs) Okay, case two. (laughs) <laughs> good. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Follow that instruction. Excellent. Who had case two? Would like to talk about it. Well, yeah. Any speak up. Who wants to do it? Okay, am I on? Um, and I need to summarize the case. Um, okay, um, the chaplain goes to a uh, extended care facility that she's, she or he's been going to for some time, for several months, and there's a number of people that, that the chaplain has seen. 
the director comes to the chaplain and says, I'm worried about this guy. He's going to get a leg amputated and he'll probably never walk again. Can you go talk to him because he's depressed? So the chaplain has talked to him before. This is not, you know, they do have a relationship that about summarized it, yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay, so... um, The ethical dilemma sounds like it's the same thing. Yeah, someone is telling you about somebody else. So so your referral, that's part of it, is coming from her, and she has an agenda. Cheer him up. Right, right, exactly. So and I'm, you know, I don't know if I didn't realize that was an ethical dilemma, but is it, it is, right? I don't know. I didn't that's, feel very... That's one of them in it, but the deeper one is here. This is... Um, you may come in with your your own biases and assumptions about whether there's a quality of life if you can't walk anymore. Oh, that was really interesting. Yeah, we, we went right. I was the chaplain in the first one, and um, Dylan was the patient, and um, Adam was like, took a bunch of notes. Um, <laughs> because the patient was already in a wheelchair, and so I, as a chaplain, um, tried the first approach um, after I found out from the patient what was going on, that he was going to have his leg amputated. I didn't walk in saying I knew that. I found that out from him. And I was trying to get him to type, you know, dude, you're like in a wheelchair and you've been there for, I didn't say that, but you've been in there for a long time, so what's the difference? And he wouldn't buy in it at all. Like, I'm losing my leg, honey. You know, like, so that was, that was really, I, I tried that and it didn't work at all. And um, that was pretty interesting. So then um, I wanted, I figured, oh, wait a minute, I'm a chaplain here. I need to, like, not be just a regular visitor. I need to behave like a chaplain, which, you know, I don't really know how to do. So, (laughs) 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 So I asked him um, whether or not, I said, you're from the Philippines, and he said yes, and I asked him, um, did I out and out ask if you were Catholic? Yeah, okay. Um, And he said no. And he said no, not really. But he used to read the Bible with his wife before his wife died. And then from there, we decided to to pick some passages out of the Bible and read them together, that that would make him feel better. Um, So that's kind of the way it went. But it was really interesting. I didn't see my hidden agenda until... Adam and Dylan pointed it out. And that was it. You're the, the ethical dilemma is you're there to serve the patient, and your own biases and assumptions need to be set aside. Right, right. So you did get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we definitely got there. They got, they got there. And then they said, hey, you were. Anyway, so. And then um, they did the role thing, and I was taking notes, although it didn't last very long because we didn't hear the five-minute warning. Um, and Adam took this, no, Adam was the patient, Dylan was the, um, the chaplain, and he wanted to get the patient out of himself, go watch a ball game together, and then they could sort of talk about it. They could talk about what was going on in the patient's life. So it was this whole other approach that was really interesting. interesting. And, then, and then the bell rang, but, so it was a whole, totally different approach the second time. 
and that does point out that when you have a consistent relationship with someone, you really can take, um, it, it isn't your only, it may not be your only moment. I mean, we never know what's going to happen tomorrow, but if you're regularly visiting and you go in and you assess, I know she said he was depressed. He doesn't seem that depressed. It might take a while to get into this. Huh, what would be the best setting for that? And there's a, there's a lot of judgment that goes into that because it's a relationship. Yeah, interesting. If it is actually your only moment and he's scheduled for surgery tomorrow and you don't know if he's going to survive, he's 85 going in for major surgery, you maybe you push a little harder right now because that might serve him. So, Any other thoughts on that one? I was just thinking about the the agenda and initial um, ethical dilemma that was a comparison in those two. One was the friend, and the other was within the role of chaplaincy. Yeah. So that's a really, really important distinction. Because if you're within the role of chaplaincy and someone's asking you to go, that's your job, is to go. As opposed to if you're a friend of a, someone and they call you up and say, Ooh, hey, these two guys need help. Could you, <laughs> could you reach out to help them? Um, so they seem extremely different to me, and that was they were put together as a comparison. Your F, your role responsibility is different. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But she is a chaplain in the community. She's a dual role. Yeah, I have a dual role in that community, and so I have the air of the. Yeah, the formal. Because people know you in that role, and that's why they're, as a friend, calling you and saying, oh, Jennifer's good at talking because she's a chaplain. I I might have gotten a call because of my skills and roles in the community, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, I have the air of where's the power. Mm-hmm. How do you make Adam? Sense of that information? The where's the power question. So, I, what did you ask? You said you have to take into account where's the power as if right. that was the answer. Oh, okay. So, thank you. So, in my role, and as I'm perceived as this person who does this work and sometimes does it here, that's there's more. Um, responsibility because there's more power in from that role than as a member. It's a little bit the difference between sitting in the teacher seat and sitting in a non-teacher seat. You know, so no matter what it feels like or what I wish, the, I have to think about the perception. Does that make sense? Yeah. That informs the decision. Yeah, and and for me, I mean, that is not that uncommon for me. And so, you know, both amongst friends, but also as a cranial practitioner, people will say, oh, so-and-so could really benefit from you. And I'm really clear, they need to get to my office. <laughs> I can help them once they get to my office. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, uh, you know, so if someone asks me about that, I say, oh, well, I'm happy to work with them. Just have them contact me, you know. Or if it's friends kind of saying, could you talk to so-and-so, I say, oh, well, I'm, I'm happy to talk with them, you know, if they want to give me a call. You know, because it's it's got. I'm not going to reach out. That's just that's standing way out on a limb. That's 
that's yeah, because you've got a professional and professional standards. Or, but even on a personal level, I'm not going to call someone up to talk to them about their problem if they haven't come to me. Someone else is saying, could you talk to so-and-so <laughs> on a personal level? I'm not going to do that. But I will invite them, that person, to say, oh, would you, I'm happy to talk with them if they want to give me a call. You know, if they can re- reach out to me, then I know they want to hear what I have to say or they, li- they want to listen, they want me to listen to them. But if someone else is asking me to help them, that's a really dangerous situation. That person hasn't sought help from me. So, right. so your personal ethic is very clear on that boundary. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And people could come down in different ways on that, based on where they, what their relationship is and what the community that's involved is. Yep. Adam? I'm curious, as people who are in the, like, purgatory of uh, chaplaincy, <laughs> <laughs> or like, you That's know, a good word for it. The liminal space, <laughs> if you will. Limbo. Um, limbo. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean like before someone's like you are a chaplain like I find (laughs) because that's how it works right it is like that they dub you Um, before they do that though like already even though I'm not a chaplain or whatever I don't know what to do you know people are already starting to see me that way you know like I'm officiating things for people and I'm like okay (laughs) um so what do you, like, how do you hold that in that liminal space? Because it, it feels more clear to me, like, yes, once you're seen as a chaplain by people because you're, like, a card-carrying member, but what about right now? So what do people think? I sort of heard you say that. It's kind of like... Even as in a in my role as a person, if somebody else asks me to help somebody else, I'm gonna say, "Well, if they want that, they can reach out to me." That's my, yeah. Even though I might be, my ego might really feel good, like, "Oh yeah, I can help them a lot." So, what about that first? I don't know from like a chaplain perspective, but I've had other situations with friends where I wear different hats, and I it's kind of a little bit of both. Like I just define it when I'm going in. I was waiting like, for I'm here to say that. as your friend. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about it. And because of my other profession, I can't tell anyone else what you're telling me. But I'm not going to give you advice on this because I'm talking to you as a friend. We're talking this out. So I kind of try to take like, you know, it's like the, the strictest standard is the one you have to follow. So I take the strictest standard as a friend. And then you would take the strictest standard as a chaplain and apply both is what I would do. Thank you. any other thoughts on that before we take a few minutes to talk about case three so I'm curious if this person asks you to take 
a less strict standard says no no I want you to I want to talk to you as a chaplain I want your I, I would like you to put on your chaplaincy role is that, that does that change the formula for you I think it, at that point it comes down to disclosure like especially being in limbo where I'm not at first I would be like well I'm in chaplaincy training and I've been volunteering in this capacity and I'm always going to apply those skills when I'm talking to you but I can't do something formal for you and and you're still my friend and the thing I didn't read it but the thing with the husband and the wife the wife tells you one thing and go talk to the husband I have friends that are couples that do that to me all the time and they know like we have our little threesome a relationship established where I'm like Andrea Victor told me that you're doing this like I don't pretend to hold confidence between the two of them just because we've been friends together for so long and they know when they come to me with that that unless they say you absolutely can't tell anybody what I'm about to tell you right now then I'm like okay that means I'm not talking to anybody ever about what you tell me right now and they kind of hold it over my head because they know I'm an attorney and there's like rules they're like I know you're an attorney so that means you can't tell anybody I'm like shoot you're kind of right when you say it like that <laughs> but like I mean do you see the difference so if I had a friend come to me and confide something into, in me about their spouse who is also my friend I would be like okay you know I'm never I'm not helping you with this issue you're venting to me and this goes away disappears I, didn't, I don't know anything forever Versus, oh, well, I want to get my spouse to do this, and this is how I feel. Will you go talk to her? I'll be like, I'll go tell her what you told me if that's what you want me to do. Like, just trying to be transparent and still mm-hmm. hold that standard for people so you're not. Because you start trying to manipulate things or be, like, slippery in any way, you're gonna, it's going to come right back on you. Yeah. Really good discussion. Yeah. Yep. Refer. Get them the help, but I don't have to be the one. So I would recommend to you just if it doesn't just refer. Get them some help. It doesn't have to be you. Beyond that, five minutes. Really, really good discussion, though. Okay, who wants to talk about case three for a minute? Uh, we had a situation where we had basically sangha meetings in a prison, and um, it wasn't a prison. It was a detention center for immigration, and uh, one of the members of the sangha meeting shared that she was going to go back home and that she was happy um, to leave because she would, no, she would no longer have to fend off unwanted sexual attention from the guards. And so the role play was the the co-group leader, like the chaplain, talking to an administrator at the prison after hearing this. And the dilemma is, does the chaplain report to the administrator what they had heard, or do they keep, and do they disclose the, which person that was incarcerated, who it was, or do they keep that confidential and have a discussion around the guards and 
has this kind of stuff come up and is this an issue? <clears throat> and something that, that I initially learned, really learned from this exercise, was I went into it first in the role as a chaplain, and in doing so, because I don't know how to be a chaplain, but I do know how to be a human resource leader. So I was coming at it from the role, and I caught myself coming from that, okay, I've been notified legally, so I need to let the administration know. And the lesson for me is um, there's a lot of drawing on experience from the past. There's also a lot of a need of letting go of some of the the hats that I put on from the past. So that's huge yeah. for me from today. That's great. Um, and the, the first approach was one of keeping confidence of the person's name and just doing a recap of we just had our little sangha that meets to meditate and, and check in with each other, just had a little meeting, and one of them came to me and said such and such, and just want to explore that, talking to the administrator, to see has this been an issue before, but keeping full confidence. And then we got discussing it and went a completely different way, which was coming to say that as the chaplain in that situation, I'm reporting toward to the institution, not to the person incarcerated. And there's a big distinction there and a change in behavior depending upon how you view it. So it's not in the scenario because really working well with so few facts is, one, what were the rules of the group and what was the expectation of the group as, as a meditation group? Were rules ever clarified about what's done with that information or not done with that information? So what is your duty by agreement and by understanding of the institution? Um, and the other is that conflict, perhaps, between our hearts and concerns for an individual's safety and then the structures of an organization and, and, and how they work. Uh, and this is where, as you said, how do you blend all your different roles? As an attorney, I would have immediately wanted to know, and I couldn't lay this down because of how upset my heart was. I'd want to know, how do you kind of get this the right attention? And is it telling the administrator... Even the, the way, is there a formal grievance procedure? It, it, is, is, should it even stay here? Do I go to the press? I mean, there's a lot of questions that get raised when we really get our deepest sense of this is wrong and this shouldn't be going on. Then also, how credible is this person? And mm-hmm. is it even true? And how do you investigate it? And you can't even have a, a con- private conversation with them. I mean, it's, it's like a horrible situation. When we noticed that uh, in, a, in the conversation afterwards, recapping this, how the social justice activist in us yeah. was triggered and came up. Yeah, thank and, you. And That's something a nice to summary. very much be aware of. Mm-hmm. We also had this scenario, and um, one of the questions that comes up for me is what you mentioned earlier about being a mandated reporter. And what wasn't clear in the language was... Uh, whether it was sexual advances or, you know, whether it was what level it was, whether it was someone being raped, whether it was someone being touched inappropriately, whether it was just comments. Um, Yeah, so what's already been expressed, the 
mm, having more information regarding the legality of the situation, which if I were in this position, I would know going in, I would know beforehand, having been a mandated reporter at times. The one thing I felt like I could do since I was in the role play, I was the uh, teacher of the group, is I felt like I could advocate for women and raise awareness with the administrator. I could talk in a way to help them potentially cultivate a little more empathy or at least awareness regarding the reality for women's vulnerability in this situation. Um, so that was kind of the, the route that I went, not knowing the other information, was to get, get the, ask them what their grievance process is and then just kind of treat, keep trying to talk to them <laughs> about to kind of try and break them down a little bit about uh, the reality for, for women, uh, how vulnerable women are um, in a situation. Another quick learning from this conversation was for us as chaplains in training over the, in our volunteer mm. that we're doing right now, the first thing I would have done was go to let the chaplain know that this just happened. I was going to say, who's the sponsoring thing? Yeah. Yeah, I wondered if anybody would pick up on that because it would be kind of weird to go straight to the administrator, but yeah. Mm. There's, a, there's a protocol. Um, I want to bring in, to add in here, there's something if you volunteer in the prison or jail, you have to sign the PREA papers, uh, which is Prison Rape Elimination Act. It's like three papers. And I think you have to go back and see what it says there. Um, now, Amanda said it really, you sign it because you're protecting the prison. But <clears throat> I think it was developed, it was set up to pr actually to protect, hopefully, the inmates, you know, for, for instance, female inmates being uh, you know, raped by the guards and stuff like that. So, um, but I just want to bring in, so anybody, uh, in fact, Anita just signed her papers to come in next week. Um, so that is there, and you really have to check and see how much you have to report something. It's in there. Great. Thank you. That's a learning. That reminds me, she left early to take care of her dog. Um. I'm curious, um, one thing that really sort of comes to my mind as a red flag is the safety of the woman reporting in the sense that if the guard is aware that he's only doing this to one person, even if you did that anonymously, is she in a position where you're, by reporting it, going to subject her to an even less safe situation? Um, so in my mind, I think your most important ethical duty is to her, her safety. Um, and I just wondered if anyone in this case asked the group what would it be like if I reported this anonymously? I mean, I feel like you'd really have to gauge whether they thought, oh, that's going to make it worse for us. Uh, I'm just curious if anyone had that kind of conversation. That was interesting because that throwaway remark and then the silence and then the moving on, was that skillful? Yeah. You know, shouldn't there have been more of a conversation or some kind of touching in about it exactly like that? Yeah. That's a question. I mean, that's the first question that comes up, and that's what I felt like where I felt like I could have a conversation in the role of the teacher of the class, I could have a conversation with the administrator about the realities for women uh, and their vulnerability and that, say that some women articulate this, I don't have to identify them in an initial situation, um, but I can talk about what's real. Um, and, and maybe raise some awareness. Then there's the other layers that we couldn't really get into because we didn't have enough information about what the reporting process is, um, what the legal responsibility is, and what um, 
uh, what at least should happen versus what might really happen for, for the woman. But without identifying the person, we can still have a conversation. With, and the, with and that's, I, I think that is a, something to reflect on because I, I, I think in it it says that the group is usually, what, six to eight? People know who they are. They know who they are. So it's touchy. And I was curious, those of you who work in prisons, would it expose the person to an unsafe situation to do what you're supposed to do? That's the dilemma. But also said that she's leaving. Yeah. Yeah. So in a sense, she's in a good position because she could report something. She's So do you wait till she goes? Because there's no retaliation. Yeah. Yeah, Leave and that's it too. Yeah. Leave address. She was only it was only unwanted attention. Right? We got exactly. At women on the that's street. not okay, though. But yeah, interesting. We've addressed this issue in training um, with Buddhist Pathways, and yeah, there's another piece of it for us is that if you don't follow protocol and report, your program can get yanked. And there are six other people or seven other people or five other people, however many is in the group, in that room that know. You can't control what they say and what they don't say. And if you as the leader of the group don't do what the prison wants you to do and report, it's going to get out, they're going to find out, and your program's gone. And, who, and is that more important than the safety of this woman if she was actually being... See, well, that's why you don't know enough. It's it, a terrible situation. But you're not the holder of her safety at that point because there are still five, six, seven other people that could disclose it. And what you're balancing is, okay, on one end, I don't say anything and all of those other people keep their mouth shut and we get to keep our program. Or is it more likely that I don't say anything than somebody says something and then people know and they know I knew and didn't say anything? In a prison setting, it's more likely that those people are going to talk it's more likely that someone's going to find out. And it's always, in my opinion, and in our like kind of official statement, if you have a protocol to report something, you must report it. You must report it. And you've, at the same time, there's no way to avoid balancing. How is that going to impact the person in your thinking and in your heart? you won't avoid that, even though you're really clear that that's the rule and I'm going to follow the rule and there are good reasons for the rule. And in fact, even when I think about it, the consequences probably aren't too bad and they're, they're probably good for our program. But the bottom line is you're not going to be able to avoid the potential that you're just stuck in the middle of a kind of a difficult situation that may not have such a clean resolution. So you articulate it really well on how to think about it and how to parse your way through to your action but you're the part of the point is you're still never going to avoid that potential for harm moral distress moral distress in, ethical distress yeah both in this context it's a it's an immigration detention center it's not a prison so i i was the the chaplain and I felt it, it, it sort of it takes me off the hook somewhat, but but the big takeaway for me is how I immediately went to my own personal agenda of the fact that this is an immigrant getting deported, and in in the dialogue that she's going to be deported the next day, it, it immediately sparked the idea that not until this gets resolved, 
thus she might have a chance of staying in the country. Which <laughs> that's interesting. Wow. And, and so that's like way out on a tangent. It's got very little to do with her, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of scary, really, you know. Very but, interesting. But, uh, yeah. um, and it's not even clear really whether she's... Yeah, and, and how it, she feels and, about and it. And like moral dilemma. <laughs> it's like that was left at the gate, right? The moral dilemma whether or not I could report her. Or, I mean, whether or not it would be in her best interest for this to be reported. Yeah, and, and what did she want, equation, really? You know. Interesting. Good to be aware of that. Yikes. <laughs> We're also stereotyping men and women in this conversation. By the way, I noticed. Yeah. Yeah. In our, yeah. And we also had the conversation in our group with this particular situation. It, we were quick to jump to who was, in fact, giving her this attention. And yeah. You don't know. You don't know. Was it a male card, a female card? You know so little. Yep. But our stereotypes are creating a story. Yeah. yeah, and the guards could be women. I mean, you know, who knows? We don't know enough. But yeah, when we don't know enough, what is our tendency? Our tendency is to project in what our expectations, our biases and assumptions. So it just demonstrates that to a point. Our administrator was clear that it could Just there is a scenario, and then um, there is a dominant experience, and that's not necessarily the same as stereotyping. So I can speak to that it's far more common for women. Women are vulnerable to men. That's that's a common reality, without necessarily being a stereotype. I think <laughs> just yeah, to just to kind corrective. of play with. You know, just to be refined in how we're speaking. All right. Any last thoughts before we wrap up this very rich learning? All right. Thank you. <laughs>